And we'll start with a question this morning. Do you ever read the Bible and think, I just don't see how this bit applies to me? For example, the passage we're going to look at this morning includes a miraculous escape from prison. Most of us have never had and never will have that particular experience. And it's easy for us to think, well, this just has no relevance to me. I think we react that way because we have a wrong idea of what the Bible is for. The Bible is not first and foremost an instruction manual for us. It's a book that reveals God to us. And I think this writer puts it in a helpful way. He says, The end point of reading Scripture is not to know how to live our lives, but to know God. Therefore, any time we read Scripture, it will be applicable to us because it will tell us about God. Now, it is also true that the Bible does help us with our lives. But that's really a byproduct of knowing God better. So when we open this book, let's not open it expecting some helpful hints on getting through life. Let's open it expecting to meet the God who made us. I mention all this because it's easy to come to think of the book of Acts as some sort of an instruction manual on how to do church or how to evangelize the world. But Acts is here to tell us about the God of the church, the God who loves the world. And that's why we're calling this series God at Work. And our passage this morning is built around a particular description of God at work. Our passage speaks about the Lord's hand. You might want to turn with me to Acts chapter 11. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1105. Acts chapter 11. We're going to pick up at verse 19 this morning, and we'll be following this through to chapter 12, verse 24. And we're going to learn three truths about God in this passage. First of all, God works through the efforts of unspectacular people. Second, God is not restricted by the attacks of his enemies or the weakness of his people. And third, God will bring judgment on his enemies, even his most powerful enemies. So first of all, God works through the efforts of unspectacular people. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. We finished last week with the church getting the message that even non-Jews, even the Gentiles, could become part of God's family. God taught the church that new life in Jesus isn't just for the Jews. The first followers of Jesus were all Jews. But God's gift of life is for all people. And that lesson begins to be worked out in our passage this morning. But the passage starts by reminding us how Jesus' followers came to be scattered all over the place. Verse 19 says, they'd been scattered in the persecution in connection with Stephen. You may remember back in chapter 7, Stephen had been executed in Jerusalem for his message about Jesus. And the violent reaction to Stephen had spilled over against all of Jesus' followers. They had to make a quick exit from Jerusalem. And we were told back then, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Here in chapter 11, we're told about some of those who were scattered. Verse 20 explains that the word they were preaching was the good news about the Lord Jesus. His death and his resurrection for our salvation. These particular followers of Jesus went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. There's a map with Jerusalem and Phoenicia, which isn't written on the map. Cyprus, some of you have been there on your holidays. And then Antioch. And the camera zooms in now on Antioch. We're told that it's really the first place where Jesus' followers began to speak not only to their fellow Jews, but, verse 20, they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It's important to realize that Antioch was a very different place from Jerusalem. It was much larger, for one thing. It had a population of about half a million people. And at this time in history, that was pretty significant. Even when Jerusalem was jam-packed with visitors for its religious festivals, even then, Jerusalem's population was only about 200,000. Antioch's normal population is more than twice that size. And in fact, it was the third city of the Roman Empire. But the main difference between Jerusalem and Antioch was religious. The Jews believed in one God, 
and the one temple in Jerusalem dominated the whole city. If you could convince a Jew that Jesus had been sent by God and was God, then you'd won the battle. You didn't have to go on to convince them to worship Jesus and no one else. But Antioch was very, very different. It was a city full of gods. You could take your pick. And you could pick as many as you wanted. The idea of worshipping only one god was an odd idea in Antioch. Why would you limit yourself like that? That was the thinking. So it's clear this little group of Jesus' followers faces big competition in this city. The people of Antioch are used to picking and mixing their gods. They probably wouldn't object to accepting Jesus as just another one of their gods. But that is not the message these believers are bringing. In his sermon in chapter 10, Peter explained that Jesus is Lord of all. He explained that Jesus is the one judge of the living and the dead. These followers of Jesus are bringing the message that Jesus doesn't share space with other gods and lords. You can't just add him to your list of gods. He demands your exclusive worship. And that is going to be a hard sell in Antioch. And you'll notice too, this group of Jesus' followers have no celebrity power to gain them a hearing. They have no big name speaker among them. In fact, verse 20 just describes them as men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're completely anonymous. So we have a seriously countercultural message brought by a bunch of no-name witnesses. Humanly speaking, the message isn't likely to gain much ground in Antioch. But look what verse 21 says. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand is a way of speaking about his power. He works through the efforts of these unnamed witnesses. And against all the odds, there's a significant response to their message. One writer points out that some of the most significant work for the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient to Christ. The Lord's hand is with his obedient people not just with his well-gifted celebrity people. God has chosen to work through his people, and he does not limit himself to a few superstars among his people. Throughout the history of the church, most of the work has been done by anonymous yet faithful men and women. God works through the efforts of unspectacular people. One of the biggest church planting organizations today is a group called Acts 29. That's the logo of their Western Europe branch. Now, you'll be aware there are only 28 chapters in Acts. But the idea is that the work begun in Acts is still going on today. And this year, Acts 29 put an advertisement in Christian magazines. And the advertisement said this. 
We are looking for men and women to work hard in small churches in difficult situations. There will be small reward, constant confusion and frustration. You will be misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned. You will receive training and mentoring. This will equip you for a life of unknown, unsung, heart-wrenching ministry and an undying joy and wonder in the presence of Jesus Christ. You will be a nobody who has nothing to offer, but you will follow Jesus, and you will know you need nothing else. That might seem like a terrible way to attract applications. We wouldn't put that on our deacon's recommendation forms. But it is accurate. It's okay to be a nobody when the Lord's hand is with you. His hand is what makes the difference. There aren't very many celebrity Christians. You might have noticed that. And that's okay. It's always been that way. God chooses to do most of his work through the efforts of unknown servants. So don't assume that you are of no use to God. Don't assume that you're off his radar when he looks at his workers. Be obedient to him wherever he's put you, and his hand will be with you. Well, the Lord does such a work through these anonymous believers in Antioch that the mother church back in Jerusalem hears about it. They send Barnabas to Antioch. And he's an interesting choice because he is not known as a dynamic speaker. He's not known to be a great organizer. He's an encourager. Barnabas means the encourager. It's not actually his real name. It's a nickname that describes the way he is. And that's what he does here. Look at verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Again, we're being shown, the Lord doesn't need big, high-profile people. In his eyes, character is miles more important than ability. His hand will be with good people who are full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So the key to a successful church is not gifted people, it's people with character. People who are content to serve without any fanfare. People who are busy encouraging their brothers and sisters. That's what Barnabas likes to do. And he knows that Saul isn't too far away from Antioch. Saul has been hanging out in Tarsus, just around the coast, since chapter 9. The believers in Jerusalem, you may remember, sent him to Tarsus because he was going to get killed if he stayed in Jerusalem. Barnabas knows Saul. He knows his gifts, and he wants Saul to be involved. So we're told he brings him to Antioch, and the two of them teach together. Verse 26 tells us the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. 
In other words, the disciples didn't come up with the name Christian for themselves. It was the people of Antioch who gave them the name. And that tells us what was most noticeable about these believers. It was their fixation with Jesus Christ. They taught that he was the Christ. That means God's special anointed deliverer. So these followers of Jesus are not known for the things they're against. They're not known for their special traditions or the way they dress. They're known for the person they follow, Jesus Christ. That's not always true of Christians, but it should be. I think today we're in danger of being known as people who are always whining about their rights. Our right to wear religious jewelry to work. Our right to decide who stays in our bed and breakfast, and so on. And I'm sure there is a place for that. But we need to be very careful. We ought to be known as people who have good news to share about a person. A person who can save us from sin and death and reconcile us to the God who made us. So let's not get too precious about our rights. We actually gave up our rights when we took up our cross to follow Jesus. These Christians in Antioch are known for the person they follow. And another thing that's distinctive about them is their love for one another. Jesus had told his followers when he was with them, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And here we see these Christians loving fellow Christians they've never even met. We're told that the Holy Spirit shows a man called Agabus that a famine is coming. Sources outside the Bible mention several famines around this time. And one of those famines came only a matter of weeks or months after this. And as a result, the price of grain more than doubled. We already know that many of the believers in Jerusalem were poor. And these Christians up in Antioch were obviously aware of that. Because verse 29 says, The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Judea is another way of referring to Jerusalem. Again, we see the Lord's hand working through these unnamed Christians. And here he works through them to provide for other Christians over 300 miles away in Jerusalem. And that's where chapter 12 is going to take us, back down to Jerusalem. And we're going to find that things are not rosy for the church there. You might have heard the phrase, my hands are tied. You might even have used that phrase yourself. I'd really like to help you, but my hands are tied. And what we mean is, my time or my ability or my resources are limited. Or there's some obstacle that stops me from doing what I'd like to do for you. My hands are tied. 
And because that's so common among human beings, we might wonder deep down if it's also true of God. Can certain things tie his hands? Chapter 12 is going to assure us that no, nothing can ever tie his hands. We're going to see that God is not restricted by the attacks of his enemies or the weakness of his people. Look how chapter 12 starts. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Herod is presented here as a challenger to God's power. In the last section, we heard about the Lord's hand. And now we're told that Herod's hand is opposing God. Verse 1 says, literally, it was about this time that King Herod laid his hands on some who belonged to the church. The NIV has the sense right. It does mean he arrested them. But the text is also presenting Herod as a challenger to God. And Herod's hand seems pretty powerful. He has James, one of the original 12 disciples, executed. And he has no trouble laying hands on Peter too. Verse 4 says that when the Jewish feast of Passover is out of the way, Herod intends to bring Peter out for public trial. What that means is that he would conduct a show trial and then Peter would be executed too. And in the meantime, Herod is taking no chances with Peter. He assigns four squads of four soldiers each. Peter is to be guarded by one squad at a time. Two soldiers would be chained to him, and the other two would stand guard. And they would swap with another squad for, of four for every three hours during the night. In other words, they're not going to fall asleep. Herod has Peter properly in hand here, and the church can't do a thing about it. The church has no political clout. They have no friends in high places. They have no connections. At least in Jerusalem, the church has become a marginalized, despised group. In the face of Herod's power, they're weak. But at this point, you might say, yes, but hold on. Verse 5 says they're earnestly praying to God for Peter. That's true. But we're going to find out later that whatever it was they were saying in those earnest prayers, they don't seem to have believed God would actually get Peter out. It's true that prayer is a weapon placed in our hands by God. Most of the time, it's the only weapon we have. And in previous weeks, I've tried to challenge us as a church about our need to join together. 
and use this weapon that God has given us. So yes, the church in Jerusalem is doing the right thing. They recognize their weakness in the face of Herod's power, and they turn to God. But often our weakness is seen in the way we use the weapon of prayer. That's apparently the case here. They're praying all right, earnestly. But when God answers their prayers, they flat out don't believe it. These people are weak in every way. They're weak in terms of political power and influence, and apparently they are weak in their faith too. The beginning of chapter 12 has set up a challenge for God. Herod is attacking. His military power is great. And God's people are weak. Even their earnest prayers are weak. Is that going to put a crimp on God's power? Look at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Just in case there's any confusion, the James, who's mentioned in verse 17, is Jesus' brother James, not James the brother of John, who's already been executed. The first remarkable thing in this section is that Peter is sleeping the night before his trial. And as a result, he assumes his escape is just a dream or a vision. But the key verse is verse 11. 
He comes to himself in the street and says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, literally from Herod's hand, and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Herod's hand could not restrict God's hand. And then we have a bit of comedy. Peter shows up at the all-night prayer meeting that's being held in his honor. Rhoda is so excited to hear him that she leaves him locked out in the street. And the people praying for Peter's release tell her she's out of her mind when she says he's been released. Herod could not restrict God's power. And God is not restricted by the lack of faith among his people either. Christians are often looked down on as people who will believe anything. But actually, the opposite tends to be true. What happens here is similar to what happened after Jesus' resurrection. Luke chapter 24 tells us that the women found the empty tomb and heard from the angels. But when they go and tell the other disciples what they've seen and heard, the text says their words seemed like nonsense to the others. When it comes to God's hand at work, Christians can be just as skeptical and hard to convince as everybody else. And when we pray, even our earnest prayers can be filled with unbelief. That's not to our credit. But thankfully, it does not restrict God's power. He often works in spite of our lack of faith. God is not restricted by the attacks of his enemies or the weakness of his people. Herod has nailed his colors to the mast. He's an enemy of God and his people. And Herod is about to find out that God's hand can not only bless and deliver his people, God's hand can also strike down his enemies. Pick up in the middle of verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. God will bring judgment on his enemies, even his most powerful enemies. Herod is a relatively powerful man. Tyre and Sidon are port cities, and in some way they depend on Herod for their food supply. That may have been because of all the trade that Herod sent their way. But in any case, Herod has fallen out with them. And that's put Tyre and Sidon in a difficult position. So they do some groveling and they ask for peace. 
And Herod decides he's going to make the most of the occasion. He's going to emphasize to these people what a powerful man he is. He shows up in all of his royal gear. He sits on his throne. And when he speaks, he's acclaimed as a god. And because he laps it up, instead of giving glory to the one true God, we're told the Lord struck him down. The ancient historian Josephus also records this incident in detail, including Herod's sudden and gruesome death. It may have been an intestinal worm that did it, but the Lord's hand was behind it. At the height of his power, Herod is gone. He had challenged God's power. He laid his hands on God's church. He tried to take God's glory for himself. And God struck him down. No human power can succeed against God. Many powerful men had tried before Herod. And since Herod, many others have tried. It always ends the same way. The powerful hand of God removes the enemy and continues to build his church. You'll notice that after we've been told of Herod's death, verse 24 says, But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Martin Luther wrote, The tyrants of this age strut briefly on the stage. Their sentence has been passed. We stand unharmed at last. A word from God destroys them. Yes, the church does suffer. For every Peter who's freed from persecution, there will be a James who has to go through persecution and even die a physical death. But God continues to do his work through unspectacular people. He is not restricted by the weakness of his people. And one day he will be finished building his church. Every last enemy will lie crushed beneath his feet. And until that day, you and I are called to walk by faith. We're called to walk to live our lives knowing that the Lord's hand is with us and nothing can ever tie his hand. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing. By faith we see the hand of God.